Hi again, Medical Education Podcast listeners. This is Kevin Eva, the editor-in-chief of the journal. As many of you will know, every January for the last decade or so, we have published a special issue that we call our State of the Science issue. It's an effort to bring together talented authors to write about timely topics that provide a bit of an overview on where the field is with relation to a particular issue or set of issues. For 2023, we are focusing that issue on quality improvement and a variety of ways in which the activity should be considered or might help us influence and improve certain aspects of what we do in health professional education. So we're fortunate today to be able to hear from Susan Jamison, who's Professor of Health Professions Education at the University of Glasgow. Susan published an article in that issue, January 2023, entitled Quality Improvement of Medical Curricula. How should we approach it? Question mark. Susan, welcome. I can see it's dark there and it's dark here, um, but I'm glad we made time to talk. Yeah, yeah. It's very nice to end the week on this note, or at least I hope it is also no at the end of the <laughs> interview. But yeah, very nice to see you, Kevin. Yeah, you as well. I'm eager to talk about this in part because it's almost a caricature, but when people think about curriculum renewal, the joke is often, you know, a new dean enters the school and he or she wants to make their mark. And so there's a mad flurry to revamp the entire curriculum that isn't very consistent with the quality improvement approach. And so I just want to put the question to you to start fairly broadly. What led you to want to write this paper and marry the notion of quality improvement with curriculum? Okay, one simple answer is that I was invited by one of the <laughs> editors of that particular issue, Professor Janet Grant, and I have worked with Janet in the past, and she knows that I have a particular interest in curriculum, and you can't, I think, be interested in curriculum and be a curriculum manager without being interested in quality, and they have gone hand in hand through a lot of my professional career. So when she invited me to write this, I think I was well placed I think a lot of my knowledge is practical, but obviously one reads the literature, is familiar with the literature and tries to embed good practice. It might help to say that for a long time I was director of first year in our undergraduate medical course and I was then deputy head of the medical school for a while. So in those roles, I lived and breathed the curriculum, embedding what was good and trying to identify what was not so good and marrying the expectations of different stakeholders and one of the areas that I talk about, which you may or may not want to come to in more detail, is the quality enhancement aspect, like taking what is already good, identifying what's already good, keeping it or making it that little bit better, like looking for the icing and the cake, if you like. And in Scotland, where the University of Glasgow is based, that is very much our national approach. And for years, I had been attending conferences and participating in these kind of national level enhancement themes approach. So I'm fairly sure I'm straying from the topic. <laughs> so I hope you're following me. You'll bring me back in course there. But yeah, I have a long standing interest in this area as part of my professional responsibility, but also just interacting with colleagues and with the literature. Yeah, no, fantastic. And that definitely comes across in the paper, that breadth and sense of experience. And you highlight in the paper that it's meant to be an exploration of some of the assumptions and practices in the area of enhancement that you just alluded to. What were some of the things that you thought were worthy of a more dedicated uh, exposition? 
Okay, so just to pick up on the enhancement, I think the first thing that I identified as a, a problem, if you like, I called, I think I identified five different problem areas. And the first one was to do with the terminology. In first, I wasn't completely certain about what I was being asked to do for this review because of the language being used. And in my context, which is in Scotland in a European institution, we don't actually use the term quality improvement as applied to curricula. We use the term quality enhancement. And in a recent Amy guide that I cite from a Dutch group, they also use that term. It is the norm in European context to talk about quality enhancement. And if you're searching in this literature, there are other terms like quality curriculum evaluation or program evaluation. And these can all lead you to articles about what we are talking about as quality improvement, which is a continuous process, a cyclic process of um, evaluating a curriculum, modifying some aspect of it and re-evaluating it, essentially. So there's this continuous holistic aspect of QI. So I think one of the things I wanted to say is that there is this different terminology and I was very aware when I was searching through the literature for resources to flag up or papers to cite that depending on the terminology I was using, I was being directed either to the North American literature or European literature or medical or general higher education literature. And I think if we don't appreciate that there's different terminology, then we maybe don't appreciate the different assumptions that people are holding. And we also potentially miss some of the literature. So anybody who is doing a review of this area, I think, needs to be informed about that. It might be a small thing, but I think it's potentially important. Mm -hmm. And actually, this was shown up by one of the reviewers who commented that they thought that quality enhancement was a novel idea. And it's not, in fact, in Scotland, but in 2023, we are celebrating 20 years of enhancement themes in higher education. So I think that just emphasised, and I have to say that reviewer and others were extremely helpful in producing or helping me to produce what hopefully is a readable article by the end of the day. But I think that comment from that reviewer showed that there is a lack of appreciation that there are these different terminologies. And, and so that, a long answer. No, that's great. And and the different terminologies, did they underlie different conceptualizations? Was it just different words that were used or did it seem to suggest that people were considering this activity in fundamentally different ways? I think that it's essentially that they're used synonymously, but I think that the quality improvement terminology has come from healthcare and particularly from graduate medicine. So there is more of a flavour of audit to it and potentially not as in-depth or as holistic. So I think that is potentially a difference, but that's a generalisation. So, I mean, different papers are probably, I think, looking at the same thing, but it's actually knowing what to search for. I think the terms curriculum evaluation is more from the general education, higher education sector, program evaluation seems to be more used in the States. It's not something that I'm so aware of and I didn't see so much in European context. So I think it is different words for similar processes. Okay. And as you read across those various literatures, thinking in terms of priorities and how people go about this sort of activity, what stood out to you as being useful or novel or insight producing for you? I think that when you look at some of the quality improvement 
literature. This is a very broad generalisation, but I think some of the literature that was bashed as quality improvement, as I said, still seems to have that flavour of audit. So it does tend to be small scale, whereas the literature that I was looking at from the European context was maybe more holistic, more in-depth, almost like at the level of evaluation research, I think. But that is a very broad statement because it did vary quite within them. I really think for me, it's more about realising that different people use different language to mean something very similar. And you don't want to lose out on what other people can help you to Mm -hmm. appreciate, help you to learn. Mm -hmm. You talk about having identified different methods and models and theoretical approaches. Did anything stand out to you as being something you'd want to particularly advocate for in terms of somebody else who's coming to your paper to think about how can they improve their quality enhancement in their own setting? I think that when I wrote the first draft of the paper, I mean, anybody listening to this will appreciate that you almost never write anything that is accepted or it's <laughs> Time. And I did have a lot more to say about surveys. A particular bugbear of mine is the surveys. And I think we've all heard the phrase survey fatigue. And in fact, I think it's mentioned by um, is it Alexander and Shearer in the same issue. And um, they have an article and they talk about students um, being subject to survey fatigue or feedback fatigue. And certainly it's a big issue for us in academic institutions. Here's another survey. They're very generic. Actually, the questions don't have a high degree of validity because they're usually so generic that they don't make sense in the context of a, especially, of course, like undergraduate medicine, where we certainly at Glasgow, and I know it's not just Glasgow, we had lots of different methodologies for teaching and different types of learning opportunities that don't fit the kind of maybe more traditional academic offerings. And yet we've got to use these surveys. We're tied to using them because, and I know this is not just in my own institution or my own country, but key performance indicators look to see, they look to judge us on these things. So personally, if I never see another survey, it'll be, it'll be lovely. And one of the things I do within my course and my programme in health professions education is I run a course and evaluation of courses and curricula. So even within that, I try to encourage my students on that, medics or nurses or whatever, to think about different ways of evaluating and to think about using methods that actually will answer the questions that you want to ask. And to think particularly not just about the what, but the why. I don't think I've put this in the article, but you want to know why people like something or don't like something. I think that different stakeholders have different things they want out of an evaluation. And when we take these standard learner surveys, we only get a very one-sided perspective. So I suppose what I'm interested in doing is encouraging people to use a variety of methods, not just the survey, they probably can't get away from that, but as you would in education research. So if you want to explore something in more depth, use focus groups, nominal group techniques, a Delphi method, something like that. Also to use the documentation from the curriculum. So I think in the article I talk about we used Janet Grant, Coles and Grant some years ago, um, offered a model where they compared the intended curriculum with the curriculum that was delivered and the curriculum that is experienced. Um, so the curriculum that's intended is the documentation. And you can do that, obviously, by taking, in the UK context, it would be the General Medical Council's curriculum, taking that and using that as part of your evaluation, kind of like a documentary analysis. I suppose that's one of your aspects. 
that you would be thinking at. So I suppose it's more variety of methods and methodology and using the right method for the right kind of question. So do you just want to know how many of the students said they were happy or do you actually want to know why they were happy and actually was it really happy or was it they felt safer or they felt they understood or they felt they were supported or, you know, that kind mm. of thing. Yeah, well, and just in talking about those different techniques, you mentioned a couple of different stakeholder groups when you start talking about the people who are doing that work as well as the students themselves. And in fact, in the paper, you list consequences of QI and curriculum for learners and educators and patients and carers and disciplines, regulators, funders. When you start thinking in those terms, it's really covering the full gamut of what we think of as the health professional education community. And so what did this effort teach you about who should be owning quality improvements and taking the lead on some of those activities you just described? I think the ownership really, it has to be everybody that's involved in the curriculum or is impacted by the curriculum. But I would probably say the people who there's two answers. One is that you could say it's the learners or the people most impacted, and, and you could argue that it's the patients, I suppose. But I think that there also has to be, I suppose, the, I'm giving about 10 answers here. The curriculum team have to, I think, be the ones that have oversight. They have to be the ones that ensure that other key stakeholders are canvassed and that their voice is heard and that appropriate stakeholders are included. I think it's almost impossible. I mean, you talked about all the different stakeholders and I did try to make sure that I thought all that there possibly could be. It's hard to envisage an evaluation that would be that big. So I think one of the things is that at different points you would be doing data collection for your evaluation and you might focus on one or other question or one or other aspect of the curriculum and different stakeholder groups might be more important there. So there's been a, it's not very recent, but um, in the UK involving patients more in the curriculum. So having patients as part of your evaluation, that happens. It doesn't happen a lot, but there might be aspects of the curriculum where it's more important that their voice is heard. The actual ownership, I suppose, is everybody who's involved, but maybe steered by the curriculum team. And increasingly, we would include students within that curriculum team, um, student-centred curricula, whether it's in the design or the evaluation or any aspect, is very much what we're trying to embed, certainly in the undergraduate context. Sorry, I'm speaking largely about what I know there. No, it's perfect. And when you start talking about that breadth of people, it's no surprise that you draw upon the notion of culture and creating a culture of quality improvement. So as my last question for this brief conversation, let me just ask your thoughts on, given how difficult it is to sway culture, what do you advise we think about first and foremost in terms of how might we start moving our own cultures towards one of quality improvements in the curriculum realm? I do think that quality is sometimes a dirty word. I better be careful what I say, but I suppose I think it's not very exciting at times. And I think that largely that's because it's associated with quality assurance. And I am not at all saying that quality assurance is not important. I appreciate that it is. But when everything is geared towards, as it does seem, I think, at times to be geared towards the top-down quality assurance, external stakeholders seeing what has to change and so on. I have experienced it's more difficult to get buy-in from people and when they have to use genetic tools that they don't have a say in developing and so on. 
um, or they're not allowed to focus on parts of the curriculum that are actually of interest to them to evaluate. I think that's dangerous. So if what you want to do is, if at all possible, to get away from that. So that's where the quality culture comes in, that you want to have it the norm that people are interested in maintaining or ensuring the quality of whatever part of the curriculum they are involved with, that interests them, and there would have to be some oversight. So I think that's the role of the curriculum team. But they would know that, for example, somebody might be evaluating some new clinical placement that's been offered in response to a need that has been dictated by the General Medical Council introducing a new outcome, that kind of thing. I would envisage that I'd want to get to the stage where people were doing different projects, if you like, that interested them, but were all relevant to the delivery of a curriculum that met the goals of the university, the learners, the GMC and so on. And I think that there are various other agendas, if you like, that are ongoing that fit with this. For example, in the article I mentioned, SOTL or Scholarship of Teaching and Learning, and this is a it's a pretty big deal if you're in academia in the UK. And I know not just in the UK, because last year I was involved as a co-author and an Amy guide about SOTL scholarship. And staff in the kind of learning and teaching roles are obliged to undertake SOTL projects where they're evaluating their teaching and their students' learning. And they're disseminating this. I think to me, it's obvious that that would be a very good example of the kind of project that you could have as part of a quality culture. Also, student-selected components, for example, that kind of thing. So It's obviously a big undertaking, but one that your paper makes clear is critically important. So I will wrap up by thanking you for that advice and directing those who want more details on some of the other mechanisms or strategies that Susan has offered to the paper, which, as I mentioned, is in the January 2023 issue of Medical Education. The title is Quality Improvement of Medical Curricula, How Should We Approach It? And Susan Jameson is the author whose voice you've been listening to. So as you heard, everybody should be interested in quality improvement in curriculum. And so I trust the article will have a lot of interest for many of you. Thanks again, Susan, and very much look forward to seeing how this continues. Thank you. 